Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. Barry, it's first thing on a Monday morning. How did you roll out of the bed this morning? It went, went well, dude. I, I slept really well last night, which is good. Um, I haven't gone insane just yet on day three of lockdown, so we're surviving this side. And your side, Chad? Yeah, yeah. Woke up on the right side of bed as well. So let's get into our episode. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad. Well, welcome back again. If you're brand new to this show, Barry's tuned in via Skype. He's in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I am in London. Obviously, a lot's happened this uh, this past week, and you know we've got a lot to chat about, Barry, as always. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this time we're gonna we're gonna try and put a little bit more of our, our feelings on the on the episode rather than just throwing extra facts. What do you think, Barry? Yeah, I think so. I think we've been guilty in the, in the past of just throwing lots and lots of facts at you. And obviously, there's lots going on. So there's lots of interesting things to talk about. But hopefully, this episode, we can share a bit of our personal stories, a bit of our personal opinions of what's going on. Um, obviously, everyone's dealing with a lot of anxiety and fear at the moment. And so hopefully, some of our personal opinions can really color your experience of this podcast. And we'd love to hear from you as well. So after we've shared our personal stuff, we'd love to hear from you guys. So please get in touch if you have any ideas or thoughts or comments on today's episode. Uh, absolutely. And uh, how you can do that, we've actually now added a link no matter where you listen to the podcast there's now a link in the description um, where you can just click on that and send us a voice note so let's get in and look at the week that was the week that was so we're going to start off with the COVID-19 updates. Uh, like I said, there's going to be a few facts here, um, but we, we're not adding to the doom and gloom. We, we want to have a little bit of a discussion. So if we look at where we are at the moment worldwide, the global number of cases has passed 660,000. Uh, obviously, we've touched on that number throughout the weeks not being as accurate as it should be um, because of the testing protocols happening around the world. Um, in terms of deaths, this number's increased quite dramatically since the last week, um, and that's now sitting just under 31,000. Um, obviously, in terms of identifying which of these deaths is specifically because of coronavirus, sometimes it becomes tough when there's some underlying conditions, um, but obviously that's a consistent basis week to week. Um, and in terms of the, the top five countries, so right at the top now is the United States. Obviously, that's uh, moved since the last week. Um, Italy is just second to that. Uh, then we've got China, Spain, and uh, Germany, which has risen quite quickly as well. And also the first clinical trial of the first potential vaccine now actually taking place in Seattle. Um, so quite a bit of movement there, Barry. Uh, we've really seen a bit of increase throughout the world this week. Yeah, definitely. I think we've seen kind of the shift from, from Asia focus over to Europe focus, and now the United States is starting to become a big part of that conversation. So as we see this virus continue to spread across across the world, I think obviously Africa is next up um, to, to kind of face that, that backlash, and we've kind of seen that delay across the world. Um, but some good news, as you say, like vaccines are starting to come into people's minds, starting to be tested. I think a lot of a lot of people are starting to build new hospitals and lots of personal yeah. protective equipment is being shipped all around the world. Absolutely. And so I think there is some good news around um, and people are fighting this with everything they have. Absolutely. Uh, certainly one of those that uh, yeah, affects all of us um, in this big fight. Now, we're going to split it up uh, by region again, except this time we're not starting off with our ends of the pond. Uh, we're going to look at some of the other places in the world. Um, and uh, something that we haven't really spoken much about uh, up till now is India. What's happened there this past week, Barry? Yeah, so I actually had a call with a friend of mine in India to get a sense of what's actually going on on the ground there. And um, obviously, India is in a similar situation to South Africa, where it's got this wide, wide poverty gap in between the rich and the poor. Yeah. And obviously, lots of very, very poor people across the country. And so that's why it's a big concern there in India. And so they've taken also very proactive action. They also in implicated a 21-day lockdown, very similar to what we've seen here. 
across the whole country. And obviously that is a huge deal because India's got over a billion people and it's got like a huge, huge population density in a lot of their big cities. Yeah. And one of the big concerns about this lockdown is the, the people who are working in these big cities trying to get back to their families, right? So obviously you've got a lot of these big cities are very, very dense and people go to work because that's where the jobs are. But a lot of their families and a lot of their rural areas are in smaller towns outside of those major cities. So I saw some very worrying footage of, of the borders at these provinces, especially outside... Um, Delhi and outside Mumbai of migrant workers trying to get back to their families. And so you wow. see these long, long queues, these huge crowds of people trying to get over those provincial borders, obviously trying to make their way back to where their kids are, where their wives are, etc. Sure. And so that is a big concern that the people from these major cities are potentially carrying that virus with them into the rural areas. And so I think India are under under huge stress and, and crisis at the moment because they also can foresee what might happen. Um, but but like, like like we said earlier, like a lot of people are taking this as proactively in a serious as possible. India is one of those places. They've really put everything to to, to the metal to try and make sure they're prepared for this crisis that's to come. And the next couple of weeks are really going to show what India's lockdown is going to mean if they can manage to flatten that curve. Yeah, this is always the tough one when we have a lockdown like this is a lot of people do work outside of the city. Um, and when it comes time to actually getting back home, you know, to actually sit out this lockdown, um, that's a natural uh, challenge that, you know, they might be bringing the virus with them. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about South Africa, which has, uh, I would say, say, a fairly similar case um, in terms of that, but uh, certainly worrying there for, for India. Um, in, in terms of that lockdown, I think that was also a bit of a surprise to, to a, lot of, a lot of people that side that that sort of action was taking place. And I believe uh, there's not a whole lot of stimulus that's been injected on the back of that. Yeah, again, it's a very similar situation to South Africa, like you say. I mean, they don't have the kind of wealth and they don't have the kind of money that they need to, to pump that stimulus into the economy. So for a lot of these poorer countries, it's not going to be the health um, disaster that's going to be the worst affected. It's going to be the economic disaster, right? And so yeah. so for the rich countries, they're really thinking about the health and thinking about the number of deaths and whatnot because they have a huge amount of money to pump back into the economy to get it back to where it needs to be. For poorer countries like India and like African countries, the economic impact is going to be the, the worst hit. And obviously, it's, it's, it's sometimes even more important than, say, the health impact because as these economies get shut down, like you say, they don't have the stimulus to try and tide over those bad times. Yep. And so these migrant workers who are leaving their work, their jobs, and going back to to their families obviously are not going to have income for the next little bit and that's going to have a huge impact on their economy so india are obviously struggling with this and they're trying to figure out what is the right thing to do hopefully the 21 day lockdown does give the flattening of the curve that is necessary yeah. and hopefully we don't see as much of the spread from the the, the main cities into the rural areas kind of like we saw in italy when the lockdown was 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 put in place in italy people dispersed to all of their their families in yeah. various rural areas and especially in northern italy yeah. and that's where the, the virus really spread and so hopefully we've learned our lessons from italy and we've kind of put things in place and I think India are trying to do that the best they can um, and whether they're going to have to rely on international aid or not we'll have to wait and see it depends on how bad things get yeah, that's always a tough decision to make for governments because uh, obviously they know of this risk that you know people returning home will, will bring it with them to other ends of the country. Uh, but at the same time, they, they try to they try to provide for that. Um, and so yeah, it's this little balancing act between allowing people to get home and uh, actually containing the virus, um, which is is really such a tricky one. I know in some countries they've sort of uh, you know quarantined sections of the country. And so inter-country transfers become quite concerning. Um, but yeah, really interesting uh, to see how India are going to tackle that. Now, moving on to the next one, which is the US. Um, we've sort of touched on this two weeks back, but last week we didn't really speak too much of it. Um, Barry, you've been keeping close contact of what's actually going on there. Um, it really looks like there's so many people saying so many different things. 
Yeah, it's really confusing in the U.S. at the moment. I think they have a real leadership problem right now because obviously you've got Trump at the helm and Trump is doing some crazy things that look ridiculous to everyone involved. And then you've got all the various states underneath him that are trying to do their best for their particular state. Yep. And so what I've seen in the media and what I've been reading about is a lot of like infighting between the state governments and the federal government, right? Because every state is trying to look after the, their people, but also trying to look after the economic impact, trying to look after the jobs, etc. And so they're trying to balance these various um, considerations. And so the federal government hasn't actually come in and given a real national-wide kind of um, way way forward or an action plan. And so a lot of people are a bit confused as to what is going on. Is there a lockdown? Isn't there a lockdown? How are we trying to deal with it? Are we keeping businesses going? Are we shutting them down, et cetera, yep. et cetera? And so there's lots of confusion right now in the U.S. I think that they are at kind of at the, they're starting to hit the exponential part of the curve. We've seen cases grow at incredible speeds in the last Definitely. couple of days. And like, you know, and like you mentioned at the top of the episode, they are now the number one um, number of cases. They have the highest number of cases across the world. And so the U.S. is really struggling with this. I think one of the reasons they're struggling, Chad, and what I wanted to chat about is the, na- the nature of American liberty. Like kind of the way that America runs is just on this pure freedom, liberty at all costs. That's yep. kind of the major value in their society. And so a lot of their citizens are actually fighting against lockdowns because they feel like it imposes on their liberty. And it does, right? When, you, when, sure. when the government ar- announces that you're going to lock down the country, you're going to try and um, stop businesses from running and stop people from leaving their homes, etc., you're almost imposing some sort of martial law. And so obviously it's for a good cause in this instance, but people are very worried about the precedent it might set as to wh- how much power the government actually has. So a lot of American citizens are trying to fight back against the lockdown, probably against their better interests, but trying to maintain that feeling of freedom and liberty. And that's very American. It's a very American idea. And so the question is, is this, is this going to bite them in the bum? Is that kind of like freedom at all costs kind of mindset going to mean that they're going to keep their economies open too long and let the virus spread until it peaks? And that's a big concern, I think. Yeah, exactly. Especially given the, the lag in terms of the data and the tests. Um, there's that three-week lag that we, we know about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that really is concerning. I mean, if we look at the UK and the initial approach that they took, which was more of a, a sort of persuasive, we advise you to do it this way, um, you know, that's kind of one potential way where the, the, where the US could, uh, you know, keep their liberty intact. But now the question is compliance. Um, and in terms of the UK and the reason why they had to escalate it to an actual lockdown um, was because of that compliance. People were still going on holiday days on the weekend um, and, and really just not taking this seriously. Um, what is the feeling that you get in terms of the US and the US citizens um, at this stage to keep that liberty right intact? Um, are they actually you know, complying and, and, and taking part in this? I think every state is dealing with it differently, right? So I watched an interview of Bill Gates on CNN, which was brilliant. And they were talking to him about the fact that there's various epicenters around the U.S. that are like have the most cases. So like New York is a big concern. San Francisco is a big concern. And, and there's a bunch of states that have, have epicenters of the disease. And um, the guy on CNN was talking about, is it possible to do a quarantine of those major areas and let the rest of the country operate? So do kind of a, a quarantine that just isolates certain problem areas. And Bill Gates said that would be nice in theory, but unfortunately, because this virus spreads so quickly, if you don't do a full lockdown and lock everyone down, then then you might as well not do a lockdown at all. You might as well go for a different strategy because the virus is going to get out because of the people that are asymptomatic. And because of the exactly. amount of travel that's still happening in the United States, I mean, Chad, I, I sent you a picture of the, of the flight radar, the amount of domestic flights still in the air in the U.S., and it is terrifying. There are thousands of flights still in the air going between states. And so if you don't lock down the whole of the United States, it's hard to see how a selective quarantine process might work. 
Um, some states are fighting for that because they they might have only 500 cases in their state, and so they're trying to protect their economy because yeah. they haven't seen the, the medical impact yet. But if you talk to people in New York who are dealing with thousands and thousands of cases and death rates rising every single day, they obviously want the whole country to be shut down because of people coming in and out to New York all the time. Yep. And so I don't quite know what's going to happen. I think that a federal government's going to have to come in at some stage and make a national kind of emergency or a national game plan. But look, when you look at Trump, it doesn't fill you with confidence because all he's talking about is keeping businesses open. He's talking about his ratings. He's talking about all sorts of nonsense. It's hard to see his administration delivering a game plan that everyone buys into because there's such polarity in the states. Right? There's the Trump states and there's the non-Trump yep. states. And the non-Trump states are not going to want to listen to him at all. And so I think we're going to see the political divide in the U.S. is really going to be um, under the spotlight here. And whether they can get the act together or not, we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. I mean, we've only seen Trump bragging about the you know economic uh, strength of the country under his reign. We saw that at the World Economic Forum. Um, and so obviously he's trying to sort of keep hold of that for as long as possible, especially when economies around the world are just crashing. Um, but now at what point, Barry, does it become completely reckless? At what point do worldwide organizations have to actually step in and say, you know, guys, if you're not doing anything, um, you're actually posing a real threat for the human race? Yeah, it's it's. I feel like it's now. Uh, you know, in my personal opinion, I feel like they are negligent right now. Um, it it really worries me when I read the stuff coming out of the states. And obviously, I know that it's all sensationalized and it's all over the top in the media. So I'm trying to take it with a pinch of salt. Yep. But based on the Twitter conversations that I've seen and the people that I respect who are living in the states and are talking out about this, people are really worried about the fact that they feel like the government has been negligent for too long and it's taken too long to put these things in place. So obviously, now we have the two trillion dollar stimulus package. We have some of the the, the kind of help coming in but they worry that it's a week or two too late. Yeah. So I don't know when when is too late. Um, I don't know how an international organization could step in, though, because if you think about it, I don't know who that's going to be to step in. Yep. I think that the U.S. has got to fix themselves, and I think all other countries around the world are going to have to block travel from the U.S. as best they can. Um, because that's the only way to kind of isolate them. In my personal opinion, I feel like the U.S., because of their, their poor response to this, ep this this pandemic, have kind of lost their authority as the moral leaders of the world, right? For a long time, the U.S. was seen as the moral high ground, kind of the, the shining light that we looked for for moral guidance and for, for superpower guidance, in a, in a way. And it feels like the U.S., over the last couple of years, because of the Trump thing and because of like, all the nonsense that happened there, is slowly starting to lose that authority. And so whether people take them seriously or not, I don't know anymore. Yeah, really interesting question. I mean, if we just put into perspective the, the, the numbers that are coming out of the U.S., um, Barry, your, your stat here is that, um, you know, we've got 15 states now that have more than 15,000 cases. Um, and if you actually looked at China, um, they only had one province outside of Wubei, uh, where, you know, Wuhan sits, um, which had that many cases. So, yeah, certainly a lot more widespread. Obviously, they're at the top of the list in absolute numbers. Um, but that certainly does put into perspective the geographical spread of that as well. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it kind of shows that it's not just a New York situation. It's not just a San Francisco situation. It really is spread out across the states. And so they have to act very quickly. And I think in a national interest, I can't see a way where each state is doing different things that that's going to work. I think they have to pull together and they have to have some sort of federal regulations or federal shutdown if needed. Um, or f some other strategy, because if they keep going the way they're going, I think they can hit that exponential curve, and then we're going to start to see some real panic there. 
Absolutely. Well, let's move on to my side of the pond, the UK. Uh, this last week, we had some really worrying news, I would say, that uh, you know the Prime Minister himself, who has been fighting this cause for, for so long, has got the coronavirus. Um, him as well as the uh, the king-to-be, Prince Charles, um, which which I found insane, um, you know, that they that they have the virus themselves. Um, so Boris is now quarantined in Downing Street, uh, but he's still taking the lead on the response, the government's response to this. Um, and he put out a warning yesterday, actually Sunday, um, that a tougher lockdown may be necessary. Um, and Michael Gove came on and reiterated um, that that may be the case. Um, what do you think a tougher lockdown may, may look like, Barry? Yeah, so I think it means that longer than 21 days, right? I, I My personal opinion is that this thing's going to go on longer than 21 days. I don't yep. think 21 days is enough to kind of slow that spread. And especially if you're doing it proactively before you've hit the peak of the curve, it might require a longer lockdown. So so that's one way it could be, could be stricter. Another way it could be stricter is to be more imposing as to you're definitely not allowed to leave your house. You're not allowed to go jogging. Or whatever small mercies you have at the moment might be taken away. Yep. And so the question is, is this going to be relevant? Is it going to be successful in trying to flatten that curve, right? So how, yep. how do we measure if it's actually working? That's one thing I've been thinking about in the last couple of days. How do you measure if the 21-day shutdown is working, right? Because ideally what you're going to see is you're going to see a flattening out of cases and that exponential curve becoming a linear curve. But you don't know what that's because of. You don't know if it's because of the, the medical system. You don't know if it's because of people's social distancing. You don't know if the lockdown is actually going to help. Only when you actually go back to normal life and you try and pe- get people to start going back to work and start going back into public situations, you're obviously going to see a lift again because the virus will start spreading again and then you'll be able to see whether that lockdown was was useful or not so it's hard to measure the success of the strategy chad well that's an interesting point barry so yesterday in the briefing uh, the medical representative actually came out and and spoke to that point really in saying that the only way they can assess it is at the end of the three-week period um and uh, i mean like you said there'll be some form of a lockdown or some form of measures really is what she reiterated um for up to the next six months um and so she she very carefully explained that you know that might not mean we're in full lockdown but it might mean that we pull one or two measures out and and look at that effect Um, but every time that that gets done we have to wait those three weeks um so yeah this is certainly an interesting point um and for all of those who are are stuck in their homes um you know it really is a a message uh, coming out from the government now that this is likely to be the case for some time to come Yeah, I think that's the biggest criticism of the lockdown strategy from those who don't think it's the right move. It's exactly that. Like, you don't know if it's working. And also, this virus has infinite patience, right? So it's not going to just, it's not going to die out. It'll be be around for the next couple of years, I think, at least. And so life life going back to normal, we have to figure out a very, very slow and methodical way to start getting back into life as normal and how to manage that virus on a longer-term basis. And so the 21 days is obviously just like a a shutdown measure to try and slow slow that spread and kind of flatten that curve as best we can can but it's naive to think that after 21 days we're going to go straight back to work straight back to life as normal we're going to have to be dealing with this in the next six months and making sure that we manage that that kind of the process as the virus becomes part of our day-to-day lives yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at these 21 days and some of the things that uh, that have, have happened now, um, 20,000 retired NHS workers have uh, now agreed to return to work. Now, that's a staggering number. I certainly didn't think it would be that high. It just shows you how many NHS workers were retired uh, who are still able to to come back and, and actually keen uh, to help out. Um, in terms of the, the volunteers, Boris came out with a call last week, um, you know, to ask anyone to, to, be, to come forward um, to give some sort of assistance, whether that is, you know, just being on the phone with someone who needs uh, contact or, 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 or various other measures. Um, they asked for 250,000 people um, and three times the amount actually showed up, signed up, um, and have now 
entered as volunteers uh, for the NHS. Uh, all of those people are now being screened and obviously working their way through the system. Um, but that certainly is a very positive message to, to see. Yeah, that's where you see the good of humanity, right? I think that in times of crises, we, we all want to pull together and we kind of feel that social cohesion and we want to be able to help. I think one of the things I've been feeling over the last few days is it's hard to know how to help. It's hard to know how to be a part of the solution rather than just sitting at home and just waiting for things to sort themselves exactly. out. Yep. And so these, these are practical examples of people who are able to, to offer whatever help they can. And like you say, it could just be a phone call to someone who's lonely. It could be a phone call to someone's in quarantine and doesn't have any social connection. It could yep. be getting groceries for someone who's too old to go and get them themselves so there's various ways we can think about how trying to help personally and i think this crisis these crises always bring out the best in humanity they bring out the kind of things that that make us human and we remind ourselves we actually need each other and we need help from each other and yeah. uh, i think i think that's beautiful and i hope that we can continue that 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 process and that thinking beyond these crisis situations i wish we could feel this kind of social cohesion in a time of just normality completely agree i mean one of the other positive things that I've seen is, is people holding each other accountable um, when it comes to things like stockpiling. I myself um, made a comment at someone yesterday um, who, who grabbed six bags of pasta. God knows what it is she's going to do with all of that pasta. So, you know, it just took me to basically take her to account um, for that. And even on social media, I've seen a lot of people talking out um, against those who are trying to play down um, these measures that are really so important uh, around the world. One of the other things that I found this week quite interesting is one of the event centers, one of the expo centers, Excel London, uh, which is situated in East London, um, has now they've started converting it into a ICU facility. Now, we saw this come out of China. We saw China actually build hospitals, fully functional hospitals from the ground up. Um, but this kind of repurposing is also really positive. Um, the way that they've been able to get the, the army involved in, in you know helping construct this facility, um, I certainly think a great feat indeed. Um, this center will potentially have the total maximum capacity of around 4,000 beds, Barry. That's, that's awesome. I think we've seen lots of these kind of little innovations and little uses of space and uses of, of engineering talent and whatnot. Like we've seen lots of people trying to come up with new ways to make cheap ventilators. So I've seen interesting designs yep. about cheap ventilators for like $100 you can make out of other materials and whatnot. So then people are pulling together to try and find out ways that we understand the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. How do you prepare for that situation? How do you have spaces available and have equipment and have um, people available to help those who can't get into major hospitals? And so this is a great use of that great example of that using that big space for good and hopefully yeah. providing support for the, the healthcare workers who are doing their best on the front lines indeed indeed i mean in terms of those ventilators i even saw a, a design with a snorkel um, which is certainly quite a, a genius way of uh, you know repurposing an item at a time of need uh, one of the other cool things that happened this week uh, i sent barry a message um, at 6 p.m on uh, i think it was wednesday or thursday night uh, there was just manic clapping going around on my streets everyone was opening their windows cheering outside um, and so yeah, everyone was basically doing their part to to thank all of those NHS workers are working so hard to save so many lives. Um, we also saw Boris and uh, the Chancellor outside of uh, number 10 Downing Street uh, doing the same thing. That was obviously before he was in quarantine, but but certainly a positive uh, thing to do and really show appreciation, which I think is so important. Yeah, it, it really is key. And I think it means a lot to the people actually working on the front lines. I think they can feel isolated in these periods because obviously everyone else is at home doing their thing and they are like dealing with the biggest crisis of their, of their lifetime. Um, and so a lot of my UK friends 
friends, including Chad, mentioned how moving an experience actually was. It really showed that everyone is in this together, and I'm sure it meant a lot to people working in the NHS. So a really, really cool gesture of appreciation, and uh, hopefully that kind of continues throughout this process. Hopefully we keep lifting each other up and having these kind of gestures to ensure that we are grateful for people who are doing the best on the front lines to save our lives. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more there, Barry. Now, let's move on to Europe. Um, obviously, Italy has been at the forefront of this for some time. Uh, Spain now obviously also rising in, in terms of their stage of the crisis. Um, talk us through this last week, Barry. Yeah, so Italy obviously has been on the front of everyone's newspapers for, for the last couple of weeks, um, and they've certainly had to dealt with uh, the huge peak of the crisis. I think they are slowly starting to get things under control. Um, we, we are unfortunately still seeing hundreds of people dying every single day, but the number of recoveries continues to increase, and the kind of rate of growth continues to decrease. And so I think okay. Italy are managing to, to survive as best they can. It's certainly not good there yet. It's certainly not stable there yet, like we've seen in Asia, yeah. but it's on the road to being stable. So that, that that is some good news from Italy. The bad news is obviously in Spain. And so Spain has seen huge increases over the last couple of days. Um, in fact, as of, as of recording, 29th of March, in the last 24 hours, they had 838 deaths, which sure. is a huge number. And yep. they're seeing like, a huge number of deaths every single every single day. They're dealing with the same sort of things seen in Italy. And so I th hopefully they're learning the lessons from what Italy has been through. So I think Spain is in for a tough week. And uh, our thoughts and condolences with everyone there. Hopefully they can find a way to flatten that curve and get it to as stable as possible as quickly as possible. Absolutely, Barry. If we look at that graph, like you mentioned, uh, with all of the planes, I was quite surprised to see the number of planes up in Europe as well. Um, certainly a, a fantastic um, example has been set by South Africa where there's literally none in the sky. Um, like you say, the US and Europe really, really lagging behind there. Obviously, Italy and Spain have uh, you know locked that down for, for some time, but uh, some of the other parts of Europe also potentially in a bit of danger there too. Yeah, I think so. I think I think Europe hasn't implemented the same sort of level of travel bans that, say, South Africa has, or and definitely the US hasn't either. And uh, there's obviously different ways to think about that because what that's done for South Africa is it's destroyed the travel industry, which is a, sure. a difficult conversation to have. Um, and so it's whether that trade-off is worth it. I, I certainly think it is at this point in time. I, I was also flabbergasted to see the number of planes in the air. Um, but again, this is a, this is a trade-off. It's a hotly debated topic. No one actually has the right answer as to what the right way to do this is. Um, and obviously, like you've got to think about various economic considerations versus the health implications. What we're seeing in Spain and Germany and Italy is really worrying, and, and hopefully that doesn't spread to the rest of Europe and to other, other places who are potentially in more, more uh, risk or have poorer countries than those countries. Um, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. Absolutely, Barry. Very worrying indeed. Well, on that topic exactly, this past week, we've seen a, a letter to the UK from Italy um, being sent out by one of the novelists that side by the name of Francesca Milandri. And I would strongly recommend anyone to go and read it uh, just in terms of the, the emotional things that we're going to see, um, obviously, because Italy is, you know, a few weeks ahead of us in this. Um, and so, yeah, I would really recommend going to have a read of that article, uh, just some of the human nature things we're going to be experiencing over the, the next couple of weeks. Um, I certainly identified with a lot of that, um, and I can certainly see where, we, where we're coming. Have you, out of interest, seen that letter, Barry? I haven't, I haven't, okay. but I must definitely go and, go and read it. I think that one of the things we underestimate during this period is the psychological and emotional impact on all of us. And so obviously we're all living with this anxiety and this fear, and especially in South Africa where we feel like the apocalypse is coming to, coming our way. Um, I think any of those things we can read to try and prepare ourselves, to get ourselves in the right state of mind, to be able to deal with this without the kind of panic we've seen in, in some other areas, I think that's important. So I definitely will go check it out. 
Fantastic. Yeah, definitely do. Um, let's move on to South Africa. We've obviously spoken a little bit about the effectiveness of, of the travel situation there. Um, in terms of the rest of what's happened this week, Barry, talk us through it. Yeah, so obviously we went into the 21-day lockdown, and so we're three days in so far. Um, I think a lot of people are dealing with this new normality and dealing with the new habits and routines they have to put in place when they're locked indoors for large periods of time. But, uh, of course, like the worry here in South Africa is not with the rich people living in their big houses in the suburbs. It really is about the townships and the poor people in the country. Because the big concern there is that how can we expect people to quarantine themselves and isolate themselves when there are six to eight people living in a one-room shack in Alexandra? So there's big concerns here about when this virus gets to the townships. And this morning, as a time of recording, we heard about the first reported case in Kailicha, which is the biggest township in, in the Western Cape by Cape Town. Yeah. And so in South Africa, everyone is very, very worried at the moment. I think there's there's big concerns of what's to come. We have to wait and see over the next couple of weeks as to what the what the, the exponential curve is going to look like. And hopefully the kind of proactive lockdown we've been put in place is going to be decent enough to flatten that curve as best as we can. So yeah, so that's kind of the big concern in the citizens from the citizens at the moment. I think a lot of people are worried about what happens when it gets into those townships. Um, and obviously the army have been deployed around around South Africa. We've seen lots of semi-scary videos about how the army is dealing with people. And I'm always a little bit, I always want to take a little bit of a pinch of salt because a lot of these things are just anecdotes and we don't see lots of the good work that the army and the police are doing. Um, but we're going to see the rubbers hit the road in the next couple of weeks as we see what happens as this virus continues to spread throughout the country. Yeah, really worrying indeed, Barry. I also watched some of those videos of the army going into some of these townships and it really is tough. Um, they want to go in there, they want to assert themselves, you know, they want people to comply with these lockdown measures. Uh, but how do you do that when uh, the person is confined to a shack? And now just to put into perspective for those who, who don't know the size of these shacks, um, I mean, I would say that they're not big than sort of 10, 15 square meters uh, where you've literally got six to eight people um, in, in one space and they really do find it tough to, to sit inside the whole day. It's hard not to be empathetic with that kind of situation. Yeah, definitely. I think that's where a lot of my anxiety has come from the last couple of days is, is trying to put that in perspective. And I've been a bit frustrated with some of my friends who are in very privileged situations who don't quite understand that, don't have the empathy for those people because maybe they haven't seen those shacks or they don't realize what those people are going through. Yep. And so I'm trying to put that in perspective and trying to understand what I would be going through if I was living in that situation. And unfortunately, there's a huge number of our population who are living in those in those environments. And uh, they often don't have the right food. They don't have the right supplies. They 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 recently lost their jobs or can't go to work, etc. And so I really do feel a lot of empathy for those people. And and that's where my concerns lie. And so it's kind of hard to sit in these nice. I mean, I sit in a nice house. I have food. I have lots of opportunities. I have Wi-Fi. All that good stuff. I'm I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. And then I think about those people out there who are really going to suffer from this. And it really makes me feel really sad, to be honest. And so I'm trying to find ways to help. I'm trying to feel useful. But it's hard to know how to help from, from these privileged situations because you don't have access to those people. You, you, other than monetary contributions, I'm not sure how else we can help these people. One of the other things I've seen come out is uh, these homeless facilities that they've come up with. Um, obviously, the army you know, making some solution available. Uh, this has been under fire as well because, you know, some people saying this was possible all along. Why has solutions for homeless people not been around sooner? What are your thoughts on that, Barry? Yeah, I think it's a statement we've heard around the world as to, as to all of a sudden people pull money out of pockets, people pull solutions out of pockets, everyone starts working together, everyone starts caring about each other in these times of crises. And it really does beg the question as to what happens in times of normalcy. 
And uh, so I don't know the answer to that. I think that um, a lot of these things are sometimes driven by politics, driven by trying to win brownie points in, in certain instances. And so it's, it's a nice chance right now to pull out those stops and try and really prove to people that you care about them. Um, but we have to look at the economic impact of these things and, and whether they are sustainable over a long-term period. I think that in South Africa, we've got such a problem with corruption and the amount of yeah. money that's gone missing that a lot of the money could have gone to solve those problems. It could have gone to be helping these people in, the, in these rural areas. But because of these politicians and these people in, in, in high areas of government who've kind of funneled the money away from the, these people, that's why they struggle. And so I think as a country, we have to really like pull together and realize that we have a duty to help these people. We really do have a duty to help these people and a moral obligation, some would say. And that moral obligation doesn't just end when the crisis ends. Like we really have to be doing everything we can to make sure that the money being spent in this country is being spent for the benefits of the majority who are really under the poverty line. And if we don't do that, we're going to find ourselves with a riot on our hands. We're going to find ourselves with, a, with an uprising because it can only go on for so long. We can only have this kind of inequality gap for so long before something happens. Yep. And so I think this crisis is a good example of that and, and really shining the spotlight on the fact that we have this huge gap between the people who are going to be absolutely fine during this crisis because they have access to medical care, they have a nice house, they have food on the table, etc. versus the majority who are living in squalor and who don't have the means to protect themselves from this virus. They just, it is impossible to isolate themselves. It's impossible to quarantine, etc. And hopefully this crisis will show that in, in like black and white, in, in clarity, to make us realize that we need to change the way this economy runs. We need to change the way we think about South Africa. And that's what I'm hopeful for. I'm hopeful that this will, although we're going to go through some dark times in the next little bits, I'm hopeful that it changes the way people think about this economy and about this country and hopefully puts us on a trajectory towards fixing some of the problems. Oh, we can only hope that, Barry, and you're completely right. Um, those who have private medical aid, uh, they're going to be fine. Uh, I had a friend who was in South Africa um, who you know, just was able to say, if you have sort of 70 pounds, 1,400 rand, you can get yourself tested. No stress at all. Um, you know, For everyone else, really big struggle. Um, and obviously, it, it's really interesting when you, when you map that against the, the climate that is the UK, um, where you know you can't get tested unless you're in the hospital. Um, and so that, that sort of level of privilege and, and that massive inequality gap where you know, we would be considered wealthy or the wealthier half um, in South Africa, uh, in the UK, you, you're really not. You know, you're sort of just one of, of everyone else. Um, and you know, that's, that's always an interesting discussion uh, to have. But, but you're right. Hopefully, people can come together and, uh, and fulfill that that moral obligation and, and shorten that gap. Um, in terms of some of the rest of the stuff, in, in terms of philanthropic efforts, um, Patrice Motsepe has uh, donated one billion rand uh, to the Solidarity Fund. Um, something important to note is that it wasn't just a personal donation. There were some other companies involved here as well, um, including Sunlum. Um, we obviously spoke about these donations, Barry, and, uh, and really the importance. Um, and I think as these donations come in, uh, the scrutiny in terms of how this, these funds are, are spent um, is, is really going to be where everyone's looking. Yeah, I think that's the key thing there, Chad, is that how are they going to deploy this money? How are they going to use it in the best way possible to do the most good? And that comes down to looking at the science of where this money needs to be spent. It comes down to data as to what kind of data do we have around the country? Where does that money need to go? How do people get help, get help and how do businesses get help? I know that a lot of small businesses are really struggling and I've been chatting to friends of mine who've had to close businesses in the last couple of days. And so that's been yeah. really emotional, really taxing on them. And so how do you ensure which of the businesses to save? Because you have to triage because there's not enough money to go around. So how do you decide yeah 
What do you prioritize? And then efficiently, how do you get that money to them in the right period of time? So it doesn't, it doesn't help if the money comes three weeks down the line. Right? The money needs to be deployed very, very soon. And so we'll wait and see as to what they're going to do there. But it's good to see people like Patrice Motsepe and his kind of companies and whatnot starting to donate these big sums. I think there's a call on social media. There's a lot of pressure on all the billionaires in South Africa to do the yep. same thing. Yep. And so there's a lot of pressure on them to try and come, come to the table. And uh, unfortunately, there's a little bit of ungratefulness in some of them. I've seen some some guys who will donate small amounts of money and then get lambasted on social media because it's only 0.1% of their mm -hmm. wealth or something, even though they've donated a huge amount of money to the cause. And so I think we all have to be a bit realistic here about the fact that these donations have to be voluntary. You can't peer pressure them into, into yep. happening. Um, and we have to be grateful for every single rand that comes in because that's one more rand we can give to the people of this country who really need it. Absolutely. Um, those schemes in terms of how they get out, I, th I think it's really going to be interesting. Like you said, obviously triaging the businesses that need it. Um, but for me, what about all those workers who, who are laid off? Now they're in the townships. A lot of these people aren't even on our banking system. Um, you know, it's really, really tough to, to make a difference there. So I really want to see how all of that happens, um, which, yeah, we'll, we'll certainly be watching. Um, one of the other things, Barry, is the emotional call that we saw this last week from uh, Edcon, the Edcon CEO, Grant Patterson, um, where he essentially laid out to all of his suppliers um, how it's, it's very possible uh, that the Edcon group are, are not going to be able to fulfill their obligations. Um, obviously, in the beginning of the call, he sort of kept his composure. Um, but towards the end, I think really, really hard uh, when you're on the line to all of these SMEs who potentially you're their only customer is really, really uh, heartbreaking um, to have to relay this message. Yeah, it was a really emotional call to listen to. I think it kind of encapsulates what South African business is feeling right now. Uh, for those who don't know, Edcon's been going through a real tough couple of years. In the last like two or three years, they've gone on the verge of bankruptcy. And Grant Patterson came in, at, I think in 2018, I think he came in to try and right the ship and try and turn around the company. And Edcon is a huge retailer across South Africa, very, very influential across all our major shopping malls because they have lots of these big brands. And like you say... These SMMEs who are supplying clothing, supplying cosmetics, supplying these these products, Edcon is a huge like customer of theirs, and and a lot of them are dependent on Edcon as as to keep their business going. And so to hear this kind of call about the suppliers might not be paid because they have to pay them pay the employees first, um, it really was heartbreaking to listen to, and it really shows the economic impact on the ground of what this is actually doing. If you think about a business owner who is built a business from scratch. It's, it's his baby. He's gone through the tough times. He's survived two or three years. He's finally managed to get Edcon as a customer and he's, he's flying and all of a sudden it's something like this. You've now fulfilled an order, say a month ago, there was a huge amount of money yep. and you're waiting for that accounts payable to come right and uh, unfortunately it doesn't come. Um, it really shows the economic impact of a shutdown like this and it kind of puts in perspective why we have to debate whether the shutdown is the right strategy or not. I still think it is, but the economic impact is going to be immense and it's going to yeah. cause a lot of chaos in the economy. And so we have to wait and see what the impact of that is and can we recover to the state we were before the virus. Yeah, no doubt about that, Barry. Um, one of the other things in terms of the economy um, is the downgrade that has now finally taken place from Moody's. It's been on the back of all of our minds for quite a long time. Um, and, you know, Moody's for, for some time has actually been fairly easy on us um, in, in being the last sort of main ratings agency to, to keep us on that investment grade. Um, they've now downgraded South Africa to junk status. Um, in terms of everyone listening, if you don't know what that means, we'll certainly unpack that for you. Um, but in terms of the reasons for the downgrade, why don't you talk us through it, Barry? 
Yeah, so so reading directly from, from Moody's statement, um, their they quote goes as follows. Unreliable electricity supply, persistent weak business confidence and investment, as well as a long-standing structural labor market rigidities, continue to constrain South Africa's economic growth. As a result, South Africa is entering a period of much lower global growth in an economically vulnerable position. The government's own capacity to limit the economic deterioration in the current shock and more durably is constrained. Yeah. And so that kind of, it, it confirms what we've thought about South Africa for the last year or two. Definitely. I think this was inevitable. I don't think we could have avoided this kind of downgrade, especially after their competitors of Fitch and S&P have already downgraded us. Yeah. Um, and so this kind of weak structural growth we've seen in our economy for a while now, and the fact we've gone to, an, to another recession, means it's inevitable. And uh, I think Moody's has been very generous with us for a long time by keeping us on investment grade for yep. as long as it did. Um, and unfortunately, in this kind of environment and this kind of global downturn, it was inevitable, I think, Chad. Absolutely. You're completely right there. Some of the effects of this downgrade um, and why it is such a, such a big deal um, for South Africa being the last of the ratings agencies to effect this downgrade um, is obviously in terms of the, uh, the, the funds that are invested in South Africa. A lot of these fund managers have mandates to only invest in investment grade assets, if you'd like. Um, and so a whole lot of these government bonds uh, that these funds have held are now going to have to be sold. Um, so there's going to be large, large capital outflows. Uh, the cost of capital uh, in the country is, is going to increase. Um, obviously, if you look at the higher debt levels of South Africa, that that, that cost of servicing that debt um, is obviously a, a key thing that we need to keep our eyes on. Um, and I mean, one of the other things, which I suppose um, in this current climate where there isn't a lot of trade happening anyway, uh, is the value of the rand. Uh, we've now seen the, the, the pound uh, to the rand hit 22.15 uh, as of this morning. Uh, that is the highest level since 2016. Obviously, there's been various other things. Uh, you know, the pound has been weak as a result of Brexit, etc. Um, but but yeah, I mean, that certainly is uh, a level we haven't seen in some time, um, and you know, likely to just 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 to increase as a, on the back of this, Barry. Yeah, definitely. It had it has huge implications, and unfortunately, it's kind of been buried in the news cycle because there's been so much else going on. But it is going to have big impacts on us going forward. One one thing I saw on the other side of the coin, though, I read an interesting op-ed by an, a guy called Vusi Tembukwayo, who I really respect here in South Africa, yeah. and he wrote an article talking about. Let's look at try. Let's try and look at the positive side of, of of junk status. Let's try and look at what this could do for our economy. And his basic thesis was. What if this is an opportunity for us to really become self-sustainable as a South Africa, as a kind of a, a market, and build an investment ecosystem that really is self-sustainable? And also, what if it focuses us to think about Africa more seriously than just relying on investment from Europe and from the States and from, from China, etc.? What if it enables us to build a more African ecosystem and kind of forces us to think about our own internal processes, our internal businesses, our internal in economic flows, and really try to build a new economy that is more inclusive for everybody? And I thought that was an interesting op-ed to read. I, I think that it's, it, it is very optimistic and it's, it's trying to show what could be the positives. It's a very, yeah. very difficult road to go down, but it just shows that we don't have to be thinking about this in doom and gloom all the time, right? A downgrade status is simply a, a status change. That's all, that's, all, that's all it is. And so if you're going to just go into nihilism and think, oh, the economy is doomed, then obviously it's going to be doomed. But if you see the opportunities here and you realize, okay, cool, you have to replace those investment flows from somewhere. How do you change your business? How do you change the way your asset manager runs? How do you change the way you look for that funding? And maybe think about Africa as your opportunity rather than those international countries and those first world countries. Maybe there's a way forward. I don't know. 
Yeah, potentially. It's an interesting vantage point. If you look at Nigeria, a really strong economy in Africa that's that's really come a long way in the last couple of years. Potentially, South Africa could get some flows from there. Um, but yeah, a really interesting one. One statement that I saw coming out from the uh, finance minister, Tito Mbueni, on Friday evening, uh, which I thought was really interesting uh, ahead of this potential downgrade, uh, was he said... Therefore, to say we are not concerned and trembling in our boots about what might be in the coming weeks and months is an understatement. Um, and I think this is kind of the time that we're living in right now. Uh, everyone, uh, not just unique to this downgrade, is really just that uncertainty. What is it about us as a human race uh, that needs to know exactly what's happening in the next coming days, the next coming months? Uh, it's this uncertainty that makes us so scared. Yeah, I think it's the I think it's the downside of being human, right? As human beings, we have this ability to foresee into the future and to think about the future. Every other animal in the animal kingdom kind of just deals with their present and they kind of deal with what's happening right now and they they're beyond say a day or two, they don't have much idea of what a future looks like. As a human being, we develop this this cortex that gives us an idea of okay, cool, we can think about the future. Yep. What that does is it's good obviously because we can plan and we can we can think more long term and that's been crucial to the survival of our species. But it also allows us to worry about things in the future. And because when things are uncertain and you look at kind of what's going to happen in the next couple of months, there are a thousand different possibilities and a lot of them are pretty bad. Yep. And it's easy to get caught up in in that thinking about what what might happen, what might happen, like worrying about what's going to come down the pipe and I think what's important for us as individuals like on a macro basis I think people have to think very skeptically and very like forecast very conservatively in the next little bit to make sure they are under they are prepared and they make sure they know what's coming down the pipe potentially but as individuals I think it's important that we think more short term think about how what can we do today to create the future that we want for ourselves I think as businesses, like a lot of people are thinking now about how do they change their business? How do they yep. reinvent themselves now from working from home? How do they reinvent their products, which now can't be delivered like they used to be? And if you're going to sit down and just worry about what's going to come a year down the line, you're going to yep. you're going to you're going to drive yourself crazy, right? But if you're able to sit down and think, cool, how can we create a future for ourselves? How can we change that business in a way that's going to make us more future-proof to these sorts of black swan events in the future? This pandemic is not going to be the last thing that's going to happen in this world. We're going to have lots yep. of these things happen over our lifetime, and so your ability to adapt to this change, your ability to, to remain positive and remain kind of resilient in this time is really what's going to separate the boys from the men. And it's going to show what businesses and what people are going to survive in these uncertain times. Because uncertainty is not new, and it's not going to go away. We're going to have these moments in our life. We're going to have these moments in our economy. And it's how you react to those situations that's going to determine the quality of your life or your business. Absolutely. And uh, if you were in that forward-looking stage a couple of years ago and, and planned for some sort of crazy eventuality like this, um, you know, you would be actually sitting in a good position right now. So um, it, it's that balance between looking ahead and, and planning um, and, and kind of putting into place steps that, you know, will help us improve the way we deal with things um, versus just worrying and, and actually not taking action. I think that's the that's the distinction. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly interesting to see how some of those businesses are pivoting at this at this time. Um, I'd like to see a bit more of it. I think a lot of work can be done from home. I think a lot of companies are, are, are just, as you say, in that uncertain stage where they're just putting holds on all recruitments. They've got projects that they're busy on, but they're just putting them on hold um, indefinitely, uh, which I think is, is, is a bit silly. I think, uh, you know, just 
trust people to to get on with the job at home. Um, it's possible. Yeah, we just need to see people making some calls uh, on that basis. Uh, in terms of some of the other stuff we've seen in this past week, obviously interesting to you and I, Barry, um, is the financial regulation around the world and how we've seen that relaxed in an unprecedented fashion um, in all markets. Uh, if we look at the financial accounting sort of regulations, um, we've seen announcements come out from the JSC uh, saying that they're going to be allowing leniency on the timing and completeness of financial statements and reports. Obviously, a lot of companies are, are working from home or some are sort of not working at all. Um, and so this makes sense. But it, it is interesting to see these kinds of measures being announced. Um, they, however, mentioned that this would be on a case-by-case basis, which I think very well sets up uh, that balance between uh, misuse and you know fairness. Um, the CIPC as well, uh, the South African uh, company's house, if you'd like, um, have come out and said they're going to be relaxing all of the reckless trading provisions, um, which is also interesting. So historically, if a company was trading under insolvent basis or sort of illiquid basis, um, you know, those directors in those companies would be held personally liable for uh, trading these companies recklessly. Um, and essentially, the, the message now is, is do whatever you need to do. If you're insolvent, keep those doors open, do whatever you need to do to keep that business going, um, which I found really interesting. We've seen the same thing happen in the UK as well uh, from the, the company's house, this side as well, um, putting in a delay in the statutory accounts and also just relaxing those provisions. Uh, I found this fascinating, Barry. Yeah, I think it is as well. I think it's, it's an example of the fact that extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And I think from the reporting side, uh, it, it really is important that the numbers are correct and accurate, right? So what you don't want is you don't want people rushing under constrained circumstances and giving out numbers that aren't correct because they're trying to meet some arbitrary deadline, right? Yeah. And, and maybe they haven't had the time to do the proper auditing, to the proper kind of checkups, to the proper consolidations and all that good thing to make sure those numbers are correct. And especially in the economic situation we are now where the stocks are flying through the floor, it's very important that those numbers are correct and accurate. Definitely. And so that, that kind of leniency, I think, makes sense. And on case-by-case basis, it makes sense as well. Like You've got to be able to prove that you, your operations are constrained and you aren't able to provide um, the right kind of regulation at that time. And then the second piece about reckless trading also makes sense because we're trying to, st- we're trying to keep jobs, right? We're trying to keep businesses alive as best possible. Yep. And so this is an example of, of levers we can pull to try and ease some of the pressure and give a little bit of a cushion to those companies. Um, and do whatever we can to make sure they have whatever they need to try and survive this period. As we go into the dark, we have to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you've got to believe these companies, if they can get through this tunnel, will be able to get back to where they need to be. And so implementing some sort of rash Companies Act action on these people because they're trying to keep their companies alive doesn't make sense. And yep. so I, for one, am glad to see these sorts of things. Um, it, it's an interesting precedent to be set. You don't know when what, what's, what's going to change and when that's going to change again back to where it should be. But who knows? Yeah, really interesting topic uh, and interesting action that we've seen. Uh, Some of the other interesting things that we've seen some companies do this past week uh, is really just step to the calls um, to provide products that have previously been out of their remit completely. Uh, Dyson, the manufacturer of uh, fans and vacuum cleaners, have come out and said that they're going to make 10,000 ventilators, um, which they expect to be ready by early April. Um, Certainly, certainly an important thing to see. Uh, We've also seen BrewDog, the alcohol manufacturer um, come out and saying that they're going to be making some hand sanitizer. Um, I've really enjoyed seeing these kinds of moves this week. 
Yeah, it's really good to see. I think that these companies obviously have the kind of machinery available. They have logistics and supply chains that are completely empty right now because their products might not be essential. Yep. Um, and so they're able to shift their, their focus to try and help in this fight. And, and, and uh, that's what I think all companies need to be thinking about is if I can't sell my products, if I can't operate in the way that I usually do, is there a way I can help in the meantime? Is there a way I can use my facilities and my resources to provide things like hand sanitizer or gloves or gowns or ventilators, et cetera. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies with a, with a little bit of creativity and a little bit of ingenuity will be able to do that, will be able to turn around and really provide value to the economy in this time. And what that does is it keeps people employed, it keeps people working, it keeps things going in the economy. Mm -hmm. And so if you are in this situation and you do have an opportunity to try and help like that, I think it's always a good thing to do. Absolutely. Set that example. Uh, save some lives. Let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. So welcome to the segment of the week where we throw in anything we feel like we want to talk about. Um, and this past week, Barry wants to talk about video communication platforms. On to you, Barry. Yeah, so we've seen with everyone in quarantine, everyone working from home, there's been a huge surge in people using video conferencing as a way to communicate with teams and to do work. And not, not just work, to actually communicate with, with family and friends around the world. Yeah. And so, like, this is, a, this is one of those moments where some companies during this lockdown period are going to absolutely soar, and these video conferencing companies are one of those examples. Now, the leader in the market for as long as I can remember has been Skype. I mean, Skype has become almost a verb we use. I'm going to Skype you. It means yeah. to video conference you. And it shows how strong their brand is because they have been the number one for so long. But what's been interesting for me in the last week to see, Chad, was that I think Skype is losing a big battle right now. I think that Zoom, as, as, a, as kind of an up-and-coming uh, company, has really taken the world by storm. And every company that I see or talk to is using Zoom for their conferencing. And so I don't know why Zoom has managed to find its way into this number one spot. I think it's because Skype has been known as somewhat not as reliable in certain instances. And Zoom has been shown as uber reliable in every, every time it works. Um, but interesting, Chad, I think that Zoom has got a worse audio and, and video quality than Skype. And you would think they'd be important in this, but it seems that only reliability matters. I don't know. It really is a fascinating one. Sometimes I think we as consumers just latch on to something because, you know, we like the way it looks. We, we like the user interface. Um, and so it's really interesting. Um, in terms of that, I think in a corporate context, uh, it's easily understandable if it is more reliable um, because you'd much rather have that call even though it's not as clear um, but the fact that it's not cutting out uh, really does help um, personally I love uh, you know all things that are high resolution etc Barry knows where I stand on this completely <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a fascinating thing to see. Uh, and we'll have to see what Microsoft, uh, who ultimately owns Skype, uh, are going to do on the back of this uh, trend that's happening. Um, also really interesting is how these products can be integrated with other suites. Um, so we've seen, uh, you know, Zoom integrates really nicely in the, in the Google remit. Some companies, believe it or not, um, do not use Microsoft Office at all. I've been at a company where Gmail was the app that I used to send emails. Uh, I used Google Calendar, Google Drive, housed all my files. Um, and there was direct integration with Zoom, which is really, really convenient uh, to send a meeting request to someone and literally just click on the link to say, make this a Zoom meeting. 
all of a sudden they've got the link there. Uh, you don't have to do anything else. Um, certainly, I think uh, an important thing to add. I'm not sure if Skype has this integration, Barry, uh, but if it doesn't, don't you think this could be one of those differentiators? Yeah, I think that's where Skype has missed the trick. I think that they, ha they have so many large corporations around the world who are just absolutely tied down by Office and by the whole Microsoft suites, and they kind of they have these legacy systems in place, and they everywhere in that office uses Microsoft products. But for some reason, Skype is still not winning that battle. So I'm sure there are those integrations. I'm sure Skype is integrated into yeah. Office and into Outlook and all those good things. But I still see a thousand x the Zoom meetings and I do the Skype meetings. And so that is bizarre. I think that Skype has really missed a trick. I don't know what they've got wrong, but they really should be the biggest winners in the situation. They really should be soaring right now and Zoom is eating their lunch. And so it's interesting <laughs> to see a, a small up and coming business, which is now not so small anymore, taking mm. on this giant, which is Microsoft and winning. Well, you always wonder whether Microsoft is going to buy them out. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to chat about is uh, last night I discovered something by the name of Disney Plus. Not sure if you've ever heard of it, Barry. Um, but essentially, it, it's it's like a Netflix for all of the Disney, Marvel, Pixar, National Geographic, and Star Wars catalogs, um, which I found fascinating. Um, it's six pounds a month if you'd like five ninety nine. Not going to trick me. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I I found it really great uh, to go through all of the Marvels that I haven't seen um, and uh, you know certainly catch up in, on some of those feel-good things that we really need uh, during this time especially on the Disney front yeah I've heard about it and I've heard very good things every friend of mine who's who's gone into that world has really enjoyed it and said it's one of the best streaming platforms they've they've had and it's because of the power of Disney right yeah. Disney has created so many incredible stories that kind of fill our childhood and now our adulthood with um, lots of these franchises which mean a lot to, to, to a lot of people and so Disney Plus is obviously doing very well. I think they are trying to fight against Netflix and a lot of these streaming platforms. A lot of these content providers are trying to fight against Netflix. And yep. Disney Plus is one of those that really does show a unique differentiator to Netflix. Like there are, there are shows on Disney Plus you can't get anywhere else and yep. really, really good shows that people care about and not just shows, movies, etc. And so they're one, of the, they're one of the few streaming platforms that really has a unique differentiator and is really forcing people to spend on the subscription of Disney Plus as well as their Netflix. Yeah, it's really interesting to see. I mean, I actually bought a Marvel box set uh, a couple of years ago um, and, you know, spent a significant amount of money of, on that. Obviously, you know, investing in Blu-ray, um, little did I know we'd be where we are now. Um, but yeah, now to have that full catalog and more um, is certainly a, a great thing to, to have. Um, and especially the, the, the sort of extra quality that we have these days as well, um, which is fantastic. So yeah, definitely check it out if you're into those kinds of catalogs. Shall we move on to our next segment, Barry? Let's look ahead. Looking ahead. So this one I'm quite excited about. Um, I actually <laughs> added a comment to the section of our collaborative workbook saying, yes, Barry, because I'm really happy he added this. And uh, this is in the last couple of weeks, Apple have released their new 2020 iPad Pro. Um, obviously, we always like looking out for these new flagship devices. Uh, the timing is obviously interesting. We spoke about Apple and how they're planning uh, to roll out their new devices over this next year, really, um, especially with the climate at hand. But they decided to, to push ahead and, and actually roll this one out. Um, and obviously, the iPad Pro has been one of those sections of the lineup that has been so niche, so specialized um, for those Pro users. Um, a lot of people saying they don't even know who those kinds of users are. 
I myself have a very old 9.7 inch iPad Pro um, and I just haven't been able to justify in the last three or four years uh, making that upgrade, um, which is really, really interesting. Some of the new features, uh, they now support cursors. Um, this kind of hints a bit of a move. Um, they've also added a new, uh, a new accessory, really, where you're able to have a trackpad and a keyboard uh, that integrate kind of wirelessly uh, with this device. Um, and uh, that definitely shifts into an interesting direction. Um, and obviously new cameras, uh, like we said, Barry, that's the only thing companies seem to throw at new devices these days is new <laughs> cameras. Um, and this, this LiDAR camera, um, which seems to do a bit of 3D mapping around a room. Uh, obviously really cool for those kinds of uh, AR sort of implications. Uh, certainly interior designers are going to be happy to see those kinds of features. But for you and me, Barry, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's the big debate, right? Is these features feel a bit gimmicky. It doesn't feel like there's anything that's that new on the on these devices. They are still very impressive and they are still the best tablets on the market by a long way. Uh, they are incredible feats of computing. But like you say, the use case is difficult to understand, right? We, this tablet market really struggles because it, it it was designed to be in between your laptop and your phone and designed to like yeah. fill some of those use cases. But the phones have got so good these days that a lot of the things you used to want to do on a tablet, you can just do on your big smartphone anyway. And they become so Definitely. big they're almost tablets themselves if you look <laughs> at the, the plus versions and whatnot mm -hmm. and so the tablet kind of falls in that limbo in that limbo area and the use cases are hard to understand one of the big things apple is trying to do is trying to convince you that the tablet can replace your <laughs> laptop and that's the big debate right yeah. is can you use an ipad pro now with its cursor support its keyboard its trackpad can you use it as your primary workstation and uh, there's a lot of people who think you can. I think if yep. you're if you're a user that doesn't use much graphics or doesn't do like fancy things, that you mostly use email and kind of word processing and those sorts of things, the iPad is perfect because you can. It's very very portable. It's incredibly impressive. It's very very fast, and it's got yep. the kind of technology inside of it that can really rival, say, a MacBook Air or kind of those products. But if you're doing anything more serious, if you're doing serious spreadsheets, if you're doing serious video editing, if you're doing serious graphic design, etc., maybe a laptop is still needed. Um, and that, that means the iPad Pro is a very impressive device, but it's hard to recommend because unless you have a very specific use case, like you say, interior design or if you're drawing or those kinds of things, if you don't yeah. have a very specific use case, it's hard to justify this very expensive product. Absolutely. It's, it's like you said, all about that use case. What are the main apps that you're using? And I think this is where this platform gets limited is uh, the apps that it allows. Um, so if we look at something like I would do, for example, video editing, there is one application there that is seen to be a fairly good one. Um, it only costs, as far as I understand, uh, 20 pounds. Um, and so I've got that uh, video editing software. It's called LumaFusion. Um, but it does still have its limitations. And I, I suppose that's that's always the, the thing here is does the software that you have access to on these, you know, smaller devices limit you in any way? Um, and so if extra features get added, then 100% maybe that is a, a viable solution. But for the moment, um, I still think laptops are, are going to be where we're going to be sticking for some time. Um, the thing is, though, I, I kind of don't think Apple would want to, you know, sort of shove us out of the, the Apple MacBook Pros as well. Um, you know, they kind of want us to have all devices. And so this is the interesting thing is how they sell it to us. Um, what is this device going to actually service? What need is it going to service? Um, and how is it going to fit into our life? Don't you find that quite an interesting place that they've put themselves in? 
Yeah, definitely. It definitely is interesting. I think that um, this idea of cannibalizing your own products is a difficult one within big corporations. Um, but it's something Apple's done well in the past. If you think about the iPod range, which has been completely cannibalized by the iPhone, yeah. they were able to make that transition. They were able to stay with the times and not keep like selling iPods until the cars came home because the iPhones all of a sudden took over from that. Yeah. And so they have been able to show in the past, albeit under Steve Jobs' leadership, but they have been able to show in the past that ability to recognize where the world is going and cannibalize their own products to get there. So whether the tablets are ever going to get to that stage, I'm a bit skeptical. I, I can't see a future where the tablet is the main computing device right now. Maybe the improvements in the, in, in the, in the future that really like change that. But at the moment, like you say, it kind of feels awkward in that limbo period. And I think that's why they're able to release it under these constrained conditions. Because I don't think they're yep. selling the amount of iPads or would be selling iPhones yeah. or MacBooks, right? True. And so I think it's a safe product to launch in this kind of period with Chinese factories slowly starting to come back online and that they're obviously confident they can guarantee whatever demand they're going to have for this new iPad. Um, but I agree yeah. with you. I, I think it's at the moment, it's just to show Apple are still innovating. It's to show they keep releasing products. I don't know how many people are going to upgrade. I think people, if, you, if you've got money to blow, then sure. If you've got an old iPad and you're looking for a new one, then it makes sense to go for the newest one. Sure. But it's hard to s tell someone who bought an iPad in, say, 2018 that this is worth the money unless you have a very specific use case for it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, just to stress then again that the hardware on these things is uh, is powerful. Uh, the hardware on these things is, is more powerful on, on the new iPad than a lot of laptops that are, are being used. Um, but for me, it's that limitation that they've placed themselves on the software, which is fascinating. Um, I could easily see uh, my laptop at the moment is just set up on a, a little stand in a vertical fashion. Screen is closed. Uh, it's just plugged into a screen and some external peripherals. I could clearly see that use case being on the new iPad. It's got a USB-C port, which you can plug a hub into and all these uh, extra accessories and peripherals, but it's a software. Uh, and I think that's where we're going to need to see some innovation for these devices to be utilized in the best way that they can be. Let's move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. Right, so develop and grow. We, we know everyone is sitting at home trying to do their best to stay sane and stay productive. And so we need, we need to chat through some things we can think about in this next period to keep yourself on the right path and try and grow yourself in this period. Like, we have to look at this as an opportunity. We have a lot of time now. We have time to think, time to reflect, time to think about where we're going with our lives. And so hopefully you can use this time productively. And so one of the ways we've been thinking about, Chad, we've chatted about it in the past, is the power of journaling, right? The power of writing down your thoughts and writing down some of the things you're feeling right now as a way of getting it out of your brain and onto paper yep. to make you realize that it's actually not as bad as you might think and to try and give us a perspective on, on it and try and help with problem solving whatever you're dealing with right now. And so in that vein, I came across an article talking about journaling and talking about the power of it and a quote that really, really resonated with me and talked about how while journaling is a great thing to think about and it's one of those things on every like top 10 things to do in the morning list and all that good stuff and lots of YouTubers to talk about it and whatnot, it's much harder to actually do it Definitely. than to talk about it. <laughs> and this quote kind of encapsulates that for me. He says, he says this, this hard work of self-reflection is slow. It generates no likes and it doesn't instantaneously banish boredom. No one else will read your notes and applaud your virtue or your wit, and your future self will likely <laughs> cringe at what you record now. And I think th I think that was perfect. I think that encapsulates yeah. everyone's like feeling about journaling, and it, it it doesn't feel fun sometimes. It doesn't feel like worthwhile. It feels like what's the point of doing this? 
And it's to be able to realize that the self-reflection process is slow and it takes time and it takes time to build the habit. It takes time to get into that mindset of reflecting on yourself and realizing that no one's going to read it. It doesn't matter for anyone other than you. Yep. And once you get to that stage, that's when the power of journaling really takes hold. So I, I encourage you, if you're struggling right now to journal, if you're trying to make it a habit and it's not coming right, realize it's a slow process. No one is going to like it. No one is going to give you applause or, or any of that stuff. It's for you. And that self-reflection is important for your own development, regardless of what other people think. Yeah, I completely agree. I always struggle to find, uh, it's always that opportunity cost of how I'm spending my time. Uh, if I could be, you know, spending it creating something or, or doing some actual thing that I can, you know, instantaneously get some gratification for. And I think that's the that's the point of this, um, you know, is I would always choose something like that instead. Um, and it's kind of one of those where we really just need to put that time in our diaries um to you know put these windows of self-reflection in um, which which i certainly think we need to do how long do you spend on it every day barry it really depends on how much i have to write some days <laughs> it could be three or four minutes where i'm yep. struggling to get three sentences on a page whereas some days i've got so much going on in my mind that i could sit there for an hour yep. and so it really depends on, on what's going on i think what's important is that doing something every day, doing a little bit every single day. It's not about writing 11 pages. It's not about writing the next great novel in your journal. It's about writing something down that yep. just tries to crystallize what's going on inside your head. All you're trying to do is trying to use journaling as like a, a mental windscreen wiper, just to like wipe the dirt and the rain out of the way yeah. so you can see clearly ahead. And so it doesn't matter how much you're doing it. It doesn't matter if it's on paper or on a computer. It doesn't matter how you do it. It's the fact that you do a little bit every single day. That's a really nice way to see it. Um, we certainly need to throw that into our daily routines. Um, moving on to the next one, I wanted to just chat about uh, how we use our time in this uh, next few weeks or months. Um, and obviously we spoke about this last week as well, but this idea of just upskilling even if it is in something trivial. So now for the YouTube viewers, uh, you'll be pleased to know that my haircut uh, was done by my fiance. Um, sort of first time she's uh, <laughs> cut my hair in the last, uh, you know, sort of year or two years. Um, and it really was on the back of watching one single YouTube video. Um, I then cut her hair as well, um, which I've never done either. Um, and yeah, it's just really interesting. We had such a fun time, but just that feeling uh, of accomplishment at the end of it, um, where, you know, we are always so worried about getting our haircuts. This is the perfect time because no one's going to see you for the next three weeks, albeit on a video call. Um, <laughs> so if you do mess it up, you know, now's the time to actually try these things. Uh, I thought it was such a cool little experiment, Barry. That sounds really cool, Chad. What I really want to ask is how terrifying was it to try and cut your fiance's <laughs> hair? Because th that is a high-pressure situation and lots of responsibilities. So talk us through that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, Barry. You're definitely not wrong. Um, it was terrifying in the beginning. Uh, I, she was very, very impatient. Uh, even just getting used to sort of handling the hair um, because, you know, I, I'm a guy. Uh, my hair is a lot different <laughs> to uh, to a lady's. Um, so, you know, just in terms of getting getting used to just using that comb in the way that you need to um to sort of set the hair up into quadrants um and you know kind of work through each different piece i mean luckily i was only taking up you know tiny little pieces of hair so it, it wasn't it wasn't a massive amount um but you know it certainly does take a little bit of trust building um and uh, <laughs> let's just say i'm glad i didn't mess it up <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I think a lot of a lot of uh, relationships are going to be tested in this lecture <laughs> a bit with a lot of these trust exercises. Uh, but it's really good to see, and I think YouTube is your friend on this. I think YouTube's got so many amazing things. So Definitely. any little DIY project you've always wanted to try, any skill you've always felt, oh, I wish I could do that. There are so many cool online resources that that can really show you what's what what you can do. And like you say, Chad, you've got three weeks. Whatever mistakes you make in these three weeks, no one has to know about. So you've got this chance <laughs> to try something that you've always wanted to try that might be scary, it might be out of your comfort zone, you might suck at it at the beginning. Um, but with a little bit of work, a little bit of practice, who knows, maybe you come out of this lockdown with a brand new skill that you can use. Absolutely. I mean, even if you look at how my face is being lit at the moment for those YouTube viewers, um, I put a little DIY thing together this morning to um, diffuse the light, which is the topic I didn't really know too much about either. Um, and it cost me sort of three pounds uh, for these uh, tin foil boxes that I bought. Um, but yeah, certainly <laughs> a great result um, with some baking paper. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just those kinds of things that, that make a difference, don't cost a lot. It's a little bit of fun at the end of the day. And we come out at the end with some usable skills, um, which is also really cool. Now to touch on something else that we've spoken a little bit about earlier, Barry, and you, you kind of mentioned it when you're speaking about paralysis and uh, versus action, um, you know, kind of in that uncertainty and how we, how we deal with it. Um, um, and I've been reading a book. I know it's been two weeks in a row where I've brought a proper prop along. Um, I'm not talking about the whole book, um, but this is a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's a very old book by a lady by the name of Susan Jeffers. Um, and I just wanted to talk about the idea of the pain to power spectrum. Um, and so, yeah, this is really just that mental state that we find ourselves in um, where we're, we're kind of looking at something from a position of pain or looking at it from a position of power and she splits that up into three other spectrums as well uh, so if we look at underneath pain she's got helplessness depression and paralysis and that's what we were talking about Barry um, and if you look at power uh, we've got choice excitement and action um, so you really need to focus on each of those little spectrums and shift them from the one direction to the other as, as best you can. Um, so if you're in that position of helplessness, what is it that you can do um, to change that feeling to a feeling of choice? I can actually choose what I'm going to do rather than I feel helpless. Um, similarly, in, in this spectrum of depression, uh, when you're in the depths of despair, um, how do you change that to excitement? Um, what is it that you can do uh, to get yourself there? And uh, similarly, with paralysis, we spoke about taking action. It's these spectrums that alone don't add really much, uh, but just that self-awareness of where we sit on the spectrum at any particular moment in time, I think is a very, very powerful tool that we can use um, to get ourselves out of our heads um, and actually come out on the other side. What do you think, Barry? I think it's really cool. I, I love the idea. I think that the key belief here is the belief that you can change your emotional state, that you don't have to be victim to whatever you're going through at the moment. And when you, when you realize you have the choice, you have the ability to change that emotional state by the way that you act, by the kind of enthusiasm you bring to things, by what you focus on, then your whole life can shift and your, your whole kind of world can change. And so I really love this idea. I think it's an important reminder to us, in, especially in these times right now, we can feel down, we can feel helpless, we can feel like, like this is being imposed on us. What yeah. if we turn that around and we try and be proactive? What kind of actions can we take to change that emotional state, to change the way we view our future? Just maybe stop worrying and think about what actions can I do right now that can create a future that's better for myself? Um, and so I think it's a really cool idea. I think it's a good reminder for all of us. I think that we all need it right now. Um, and the, the reminder is the belief that you can change your emotional state. That's where it all starts. Once you believe that, you can create whatever life you want for yourself. 
absolutely true. Couldn't have said it better myself. And on that positive note, uh, it brings us to the end of our episode. We're quite far into this podcast now, Barry. Episode 21. Uh, we changed the branding last week. Uh, it's a little bit silly, but I think quite cool. Um, the podcast is certainly evolving a little bit and growing into its own, don't you think? I think so, Chad. I've certainly learned a hell of a lot. I mean, we, we chatted about the reasons for starting the podcast. I think I'm slowly getting better at some things and yep. certainly getting worse at some other things. <laughs> um, and so we are, le- we are learning a lot and we, we're growing with you guys. And we've had so many encouraging messages from people. So we really do appreciate those messages. We're very grateful for anyone who gives us their time and like takes time to listen to this stuff. Uh, we hope it provides value. It certainly is providing value for me. And I think I speak for Chad as well. Um, and so I'm really enjoying it. I'm hoping that we continue to do this for a long time to come and we keep getting better and better and better absolutely well hopefully you like the way we've gone in our new branding let us know what you think uh, that icon has changed now um so yeah hopefully you, you you like seeing our faces um and certainly please do send through any feedback send through your questions like i said there's now a link in every single episode um for you to interact with us and that's what we want to do so thanks again for tuning in this was episode 21 of across the pond Oh,